We are in chapter 11 today, which completes the little mini unit of 9, 10, and 11. So that means we will end our long national nightmare of going through this all and try to make sense of it. Now, just because you know I'm contractually obligated to remind you, you have to look at this in its totality. So as we go through chapter 11, I'm going to try to go through it in light of chapters 9 and 10. Now, I'll tell you this before, tell you this again. You're allowed to like disagree. You're even allowed to argue. You're just not allowed to do it while ignoring the text. So if at any point today your brain is telling you, but, 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 and that but, but, but has ignored chapters 9 and 10, just bury it. It's wrong, okay? It's got to be seen in light of what's come before. So what's come before? In light of God's sovereign rule, in light, that's chapter 9, in light of the necessity of human action, in light of that sovereign rule, that's chapter 10, what do we make of Israel as they are presented in the Old Testament and even now? And this would be really important for the Roman church. So slight history lesson to, to remind you where we start in this, in this letter way, way back when. The Roman church, like almost all of the early churches, would have been primarily composed of Jewish believers at the beginning, especially a cosmopolitan city like Rome. So you see this coming out of Pentecost. You see this with the, with the early function of church groups meeting in a synagogue. You even see this with the Jerusalem church gathering at the temple. However, Claudius, late 40s, early 50s, right before the writing of this book, actually got sick of dealing with the Jews and expelled them from Rome. And this is one of the benefits that the early church actually had was that the Jews were the only really religious group in the empire that had a modicum of toleration and carve out in Roman law. So you could believe whatever you wanted in the Roman system, as long as you would not upset the apple cart, offer the incense to the emperor, worship the Roman gods. The only exception to that group was the Jews, because the Jews had a really long history of saying, we will not worship your idols and being killed for it. And eventually the Romans just got tired of slaughtering Jews for what they saw was no good reason. So like, you know what, fine. You people don't have to do it. And the early Christians were just seen as an offshoot of you people. So they were seen as a group of Jews who were just believing something else. So they got the same little carve out in toleration for the first five or six decades of, the, of Christianity. So it's a nice little setup. So when the Jews are expelled, though, the church stays because there are Gentiles being brought into the church. And that's part of the reason why Paul is writing this letter is that you have a lot of that connection to the Old Testament history is now lost. A lot of that explanation of Old Testament prophecy and understanding and growing up with that is gone. So Paul is trying to bridge that gap for these now mostly Gentile believers in Rome. So how do you deal with this? What's the distinctions? How do we see ourselves? How do we see the Israelites? How do we make sense of this in light of who God is? Is and what that means in response. Sound good? Because that's chapter 11, that's what we're going to try to make sense of. So, let's dive in. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, short answer to Paul's question, has God rejected his people? No. Now, what's the proof of it? Paul is actually the proof of it, meaning why do we know that the entirety of Israel has not been rejected? Because what nationality is Paul? And Paul is a Christian. 
Therefore, we know that Israel hasn't been rejected because I'm part of Israel and I'm in the church. Therefore, we hasn't just cast everyone aside, which again, lays out part of the history of Paul, which we would know he's covered in Galatians, and also lays out the working of God, how he's accomplishing this amongst the Jew and the Gentile. And by the way, if you want to see that example, you can read it in Acts 9. We'll, we'll save ourselves, mainly because I'm going to save my voice and not read everything today. It is what it is. Verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars and I alone am left. And they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So by way of example, Paul cites from um, 1 Kings 19. It's, um, it's 10 and 18 are the specific sites, but you can read that whole chapter. It would do you very good. One of the more fascinating passages of the Old Testament, we've talked about it a bunch, I'm going to give you a quick rundown again, is Elijah comes down off of Mount Carmel after slaughtering the 450 prophets of Baal. Great victory for God, great demonstration of the power of the prophet of God over and against the false prophets of the idol Baal. And then Jezebel's going to kill you. Run away! And you're going, you go from this great mountaintop, literal, literally mountaintop victory, to this, I got to hide myself. Why does he have to hide himself? Because they're going to kill me. And if they kill me, and I'm the only prophet of God, then there won't be any prophets of God left. You see why I'm very important? I mean, this is Elijah's argument. And in Elijah's defense, if you believed that, wouldn't you think you're very important you need to run away? Yes, you would too. What's God's response? You're not the last one. You're not the only testimony I have. There are in Israel men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. They are the remnants. They are the preserved. Paul is using that as an, as an example. So if you went back in time to Elijah's day and you asked people, who is Israel? They would probably look at you and say, well, look, it's the nation. We're here, we have King Ahab, we have Queen Jezebel, we have our religious systems, we have everything that we have. Now go up into the courts of heaven in that day and ask God, who is Israel? Those who worship and serve, who do not worship idols, who reject the evils of this world. That is Israel. And Paul is using that as an example in the present day. How do you know Israel is not rejected? Well, because Paul, Israelite, in the kingdom, part of the church, and just from Pentecost and from the work that came out of the beginning of Acts, most of those early believers were what? Diasporic Jews brought into the kingdom, planting churches, doing the work. This is how God has always operated. He has always operated amongst his people, redeeming and preserving them in the midst of sin iniquity, and judgment. So the reasons why I wanted that Joel passage this morning, it's a reminder to you always, something that we should always be reminded of both then and now, is that God's not just like, okay, we got to stop all the bad stuff and now we can save some people. No, God is redeeming them from the midst of sin, from the midst of the evils of this world, from the broken world systems, from the broken government persecutions, from whatever it may be. In the midst of that evil, God is redeeming his people. And as he is redeeming them, there is a hope and a reality that there is also coming a time when sin will be judged. It will be judged in those individuals, yes, but it will also be judged finally. 
That is the hope that that one who ascends to the ancient of days will usher in his kingdom when all sin is then undone and God reigns rightly. That's not here yet. Therefore, sin still operates. Sin still works. We still have to put our hope and our trust in God that what he has promised, he will deliver. And by the way, verse 5, not much has changed. Um, In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Now, this is where your Bible helps you lay down examples. So, one of my favorite examples, because it's... um, Should we get into the really fun with translation stuff? Do we have time? Do I have voice for that today? Probably not. Am I going to do it anyway? Probably. (laughs) Um, When I say nothing has changed based on this verse, one of my favorites on this is Jude 5. I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. So what's Jude's reminder? That God judges sin and that God, the church has always had problems with false teachers creeping in unnoticed. That's the whole reason Jude's writing his letter. Jude tells the recipients that I would love to celebrate our common faith, but certain persons have crept in unnoticed. And these people are like this group, that God redeems the people out of Egypt. And by the way, there's a fun little textual variant on that. Almost all of your Bibles will translate that as God after saving a people out of Egypt or the Lord after saving a people out of Egypt. Apparently, we've all been wrong because when there's a textual variant that reads Jesus saving a people out of Egypt. And we just all assume that that's wrong because there's no way that Jude would have written that. Apparently, we're discovering as we dig into the manuscripts more that that's actually what Jude wrote, which is a really fun testimony to the deity of Christ there in the book of Jude, that Jesus saving people out of Egypt, which we know, we talked about the angel of the Lord in the midst of the camp and leading the people out, so we know that's Jesus, but it's just kind of neat to see a New Testament writer be like, oh yeah, that's, that's him right there, see, he's right here, see, 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 anyway, back on the highway, what's the example? Well, if Israel was brought out of Egypt, but some of Israel falls in the wilderness because they are disobedient to God, was all Israel saved? by being delivered into the promised land? And the answer is yes, because they're not all Israel who came out of Egypt. They're all Israel who are entering into God's kingdom. They're not all Israel because they're descendants from Abraham. This is the argument that John the Baptist gives the people when they come out to him, right? The religious leaders are coming out and he goes, who warned you, you brood of vipers, you pit of snakes? Not a good church growth verse there. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And and don't tell me that you're children of Abraham, that's why you deserve this. God can raise up children to Abraham from stones. It doesn't matter who your parents are, who your grandparents are, who your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandpa was. I don't care. Paul doesn't care. John the Baptist didn't care. God didn't care. It's the argument we, it's the discussion we were having in Sunday school this morning when Jesus asked the disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they give a litany of terrible answers. What's the follow-up question? Who do you say that I am. Your lineage is not important. Your heart is important. And that's what Paul is building out here. That's why you see things like you, uh, like you do in Hebrews 3. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt, I'm sorry, were not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness, and to whom he did swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. It's part of the argument. 
Just because you had the right parents, just because you had the right lineage, didn't mean you had the right heart. And what is God judging by? The heart. The part of the heart of the problem has always been the problem of the heart. And this is what Paul is trying to lay out here. As you understand Israel, has God failed them? No. He is not. He is delivering his people. And you don't get to claim to be his people just because you have a right bloodline. So Paul continues, verse 6. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. And this has been Paul's drumbeat in this book. This goes back to chapter 4, proving from, the, from Adam to Abraham to now that the work of God is by grace. If you want the great summation, it's Ephesians chapter 2. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, that should lead you to some questions about Israel about their work, and about what God is doing. And Paul recognizes that, so he decides to ask the questions for you and answer them, starting in verse 7. What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. Which shouldn't be new information, by the way. We're going to pause at that comma so we can go back to chapter 9 real quick. Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. It's Romans 9.32. Why did Israel fail? Because Israel made it about who? Humanity would never do such a thing. I mean, not in the least, would we? No, no, not in the least. So what Israel is seeking, it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it. Because who at the end of the day is adding to his kingdom? Remember what you need to understand the book of Romans, an understanding of who running this place. Sovereignty of God underlying everything. So you can go to things like 1 Peter 1. Peter writing his letter to who? To those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, basically all of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. So even Peter, recognizing as he's writing to Christians, how are they Christians? By the work of God, the Spirit, and accomplishment of Christ. I'm determined to make a mess up here. I'm telling you, it's just not working out for me today. Stay where I put you, napkin. There we go. Stay. It's going to be a day. If you want a fuller rundown of this, the way I've, um, if you ever want to read, like how many of you were the one in high school, you never read the book, you went and found the cliff notes in the library? <laughs> see, see, you know, now you never raise your hands, but I always tell by the giggle. <laughs> you immediately just go, ah. <laughs> if you ever want the Cliff's Notes version of Romans, it does exist. It's called Ephesians. Paul doesn't have to rewrite everything from the letter to the Romans because it's already written, wait for it, in the letter to the Romans. So you can read the shorthand version in something like Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us and the beloved. Now I'm going to pause real quick, because we're going to make sure we stay in the middle of the highway. So don't, no pinballing, there are no bumper rails, okay? Is God sovereign over all things? Yes. Does that include salvation? Yes, because God's sovereign over 
all things. Does that mean you get to just do whatever and God's got this? No. Remember, Romans 6 is still in your Bible, right? Romans 6, which comes before 9, 10, and 11. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. This is part of why Romans 10 has to exist, is you have a responsibility to fulfill the mission of God. As the people of God, you're actually supposed to do something. So always remember something we haven't covered in a while. It's one of our little equations we keep reminding you of. So you are saved from something, right? You are saved from sin, from your own depravity, but you are saved to something, to the work of the kingdom, to dwelling in his presence. And that... Great verse for you, right? Is we always remember that Jesus calls those who are weary and heavy laden because he will give them rest. You, you do remember the rest of that, right? Take and learn from me for my burden is easy and my yoke is light. I don't know about you. I don't care how light the yoke is. You know what it still is? It's still a yoke and it may be an easy burden, but you know what it still is? It's still a burden. There's still work to be done. We like to think of work as a four-letter word because it is in English, but you know what I say four-letter word, I mean like the figurative four-letter words. But remember, work exists before sin in the garden. Adam and Eve have a job to do before sin. Sin makes it miserable, but you still have things to do. Part of the work of redemption is the saved to something, is that the work you now render, you render unto God, making it a light burden. Yes, you still have to get up in the morning when you're tired. Yes, you still have to deal with all the aggravating things you don't want to deal with. Yes, you have to sit next to that person at work that you don't like that always eats the weird stuff for breakfast, make their breath bad. Sorry, I can't fix that. However, because you were offering that to God and not to your boss, there is now joy in the work. There is now joy in the service. You are saved to something, not just from. It's not like, oh, yay, we got out of the swamp. Go team. Well, no, now we actually go about the business of progressing to the kingdom. And that's part of why this is so important is you don't just get to sit there and go, well, God's got this. That's, that's the ditch on the one side. We'll just drive headlong into it because he's got this. We don't have to do anything. No, no, no. You are still responsible before God to worship and serve rightly, to make all thoughts captive to the work of Christ, to renew your mind, to actually offer yourself as a sacrifice. Now, with that in mind, um, just lost my spot. Oh, we're still here. Those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were see, we're pausing here because it, it it has a weird gap there because Paul has run on sentences, as you know. So the rest were hard in verse eight. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, and ears to hear not, down to this very day. So where does it say something like that? Because remember, anytime you see those all caps, what's going on here? Quotation from the Old Testament. It's Deuteronomy 29 and Isaiah 29. Isn't that so easy to remember? Isn't it helpful when it works out like that? Now, why is that there? Because God has, is, and will judge sin. He has judged sin, he is judging sin, and he will judge sin. Just like you have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. The same thing is going on with the other side of the coin, that God is redeeming you in the midst of his judgment against sin. Which again, not new information in this section. Go back to Romans 9. What shall we say then? There is no injustice in God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. 
For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Here, I'm gonna build on that example for a second. So why did Pharaoh who knew not Joseph exist? So that God could demonstrate his power over Egypt, his power over Pharaoh and his judgment over sin so that he might redeem his people in the midst of judgment. That's the whole reason that Pharaoh exists. Is, is that his fault? See, I, oh, I, I love when I see the brains just go, mm. the answer is yes, because who's responsible for your sin? You are. You are. Yes, God has raised that man up so that he would judge his sin. That does not make God unjust. What person would God be unjust towards if he judged their sin? I mean, outside of Jesus, how many, how many good ones are there? So that Pharaoh exists and God judged his sin. Does that make God bad? No, because that sin exists. If you'd like another picture of this, you can actually see it in Israel itself. So who is king in Israel? This is not a trick question. Who is king in Israel? Who is always supposed to be king in Israel? Maybe ask it an easier way. God is, right? What's that, what's that punchline at the end of Judges? Why is everything so bad in the book of Judges? Because there was no king in Israel in those days, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Meaning, who, who have they rejected? They have rejected God, and they have now served the lust of their flesh and the desire of their eyes, and they're doing whatever they feel like. So they then look at Samuel and say, you know, we've had some bad priests before, and you're good, but we've met your kids. And they're terrible. And we don't want them in charge when you're dead. So what do we want? A king. Now, is it that they want a king that we would then be ruled righteously so that we would then be honoring to God and pleasing in his sight as all of his blessings would flow upon us as we are obedient children? That's why we want a king. No, we want a king so we can be like the other nations, so that he can fight our battles and he can do what he's supposed to do and we don't have to do any of this mess anymore. In other words, we want to continue to abdicate our responsibility to be a light into the nations. We want to continue to abdicate our responsibility to honor and serve God. We just want you to make this easy. Give us a king so that everything will be fine. Who picked the king? God did. Was he any good? God picked Saul, taller than everybody else. He's pretty even. You know, he's attractive. If you're going to pick the guy, it's, it's basically like your high school president election. Like, there's the one group are like, no, no, we actually want people on student government who know things. And then there's just that, but he's tall and blonde and pretty. He, he president, you know? And who wins most of those elections? Be honest. <laughs> See, some of you have, some of you went to that school and be like, yeah, tall, tall, blonde and pretty won that every single time. Because how, let's be honest, how good at this are we? Not very. Saul was everything you could have asked for, everything you would have wanted, picked by God. Is that fair? Is that, is that nice to do the Israelites? Yes. You, you never said this to your children? Fine. You want it so badly? Have it. You knew it was bad for them. Deep down, they knew it was bad for them. What'd you do anyway? Because sometimes you have to learn the lesson how. Welcome to Israel. Welcome to Egypt. Welcome to the work of humanity. This is God's sovereign work, judging sinful nations because they are full of sinful people. And what's one of the best ways to judge a sinful nation? Give them sinful leaders. 
I've told, um, we've told you this before. We talked about this a while back in men's Bible study. You want to know if a nation is under judgment or not? You know the first thing that's going to go out the window when it is? Wisdom. You will look at people and go, oh my goodness, what has happened to our ability to think? This is what happens to Pharaoh, isn't it? Wouldn't it have been simple for Pharaoh to go, you know, this is getting bad. We're destroying the economy. We're getting people killed. You know what we should do? We're going to let the Israelites go, and then we'll figure this out from there. Wouldn't that have made sense? Wouldn't that have been easy? What was like the one thing not on the table? Yeah, that. You look at Saul. You know, it's kind of easy to just wait for Samuel. It's kind of easy to not try to kill the people that actually God has sent to help you. And yet, what can Saul help himself? What can he not do? Wisdom. Out the window. When you see the judgment on the sin of Judah in Israel, you see rulers like Ahab and Rehoboam, and you see the lack of wisdom, and you see just idiocy and stupidity in the heights of leadership. Stop me if you've heard this before. (laughs) You've never watched C SPAN, have you? (laughs) Because what happens? They're not capable of thinking. They're not capable because there is no fear of God before their eyes. They do not have the beginning of wisdom because they do not have the fear of the Lord. And this is how God operates and judges the nations. This is a righteous work by God because what does all sin deserve? This is why, and I promise you we're going to get off this tangent in just a second. This is why the hammering from chapters 2 three, four, and five of the book of Romans to explain to you that your salvation is by grace. Not something you have deserved, not something that you have earned, but a gracious work of a sovereign God marking you out as his people as opposed to those that are being judged. In other words, you are being saved in the midst of God judging all of that sin. Nothing has changed. And you don't get to sit there and go, but, 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 we're this, we're that. Mm. Only Two types of people. You're either in the kingdom or you are out of the kingdom. Now, verse 9. David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not, and bend their backs forever. Well, tell me how you really feel, David. By the way, Psalm 69 And I'm going to give you, I don't do this often, so I'm giving you homework. Go home and actually read Psalm 69, because that sounds brutal, doesn't it? Like, doesn't that just sound like David is annoyed with everyone that day, and he wrote that before coffee? Go read the rest of it, and be astounded at how much joy is in Psalm 69, and how much celebration of the salvation of God that David is recounting. David rejoicing over the work that God has done for his people and then calling on what? That you have redeemed your people. What do those who are not your people need? Yeah, the left foot of judgment. And that's what David is calling for. So homework, Psalm 69 will be good for you. Verse 11. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? That's actually a really good question. So what Paul's laying out is, Israel had a job. They had a place in history. They were supposed to do something. And because of their disobedience, salvation has now come to the Gentiles. God has added to his kingdom. So the question is being asked constantly is, so does that mean everybody's gone? And Paul's answer was what? No, because I'm proof that I'm not gone. So does that mean that they have stumbled completely so that they have failed utterly? May it never be. By their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, 
Oh, no, go back, go back. Yeah, we're going to stay there. This takes two ideas from the previous chapters and puts them together. I'll make sure we get this. So let's go back to chapter 9 first. It is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. So that in Romans 9 is building on Paul's argument from earlier. When was Abraham saved, before or after circumcision? Before. So his marker of salvation is Genesis 15. Circumcision comes later. Why? So that Abraham is the father of the nation in the flesh, but also the father of the kingdom in faith by the Spirit. So Paul's reminding that in Romans 9. That's one idea. Israel is not Israel because of ethnic ties. Israel is Israel because of spiritual ties. And then chapter 10. I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding, I will anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. So this is awesome. Did Israel fail in her mission to evangelize the nations? See, some of you are nodding, some of you are shaking your head. That's what this verse is about. I say then, they did they uh, I say then they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? I mean, have they failed utterly? No. Why not? Because as they disbelieved, as they refused, what has God done? God has worked in their place to raise up witnesses, to raise up prophets, to raise up apostles, to go out unto the nations so that the gospel would be preached. And as Paul goes out into the synagogues and Israel rejects, the Gentiles believe. This is one of those things that we're covering on Wednesdays as, as we're going through Genesis. One of the things you can see throughout your Bible in the Old Testament is when you look at the heroes of the Old Testament, they are almost without exception utter failures. Almost without exception. However, they are great examples of God working through sinful people. Meaning the people are weak. The people are sinful. The people are of the flesh. And yet it is God accomplishing and working in spite of them. So if you want a picture of this, like look at Samson. What is Samson's job? He's a judge. What's the judge supposed to do? Well, he's not supposed to judge the people. He's supposed to judge the enemies of God. He's supposed to go out and kick out the evil influence because the people have repented and returned to God, and so he's raising up a deliverer for them. If you were going to pick a dude to be a deliverer, you would so not pick Samson. And he systematically, so if you ever, if you ever miss this, Samson systematically breaks every aspect of the Nazarite vow throughout his entire life. He's a womanizer, he's an alcoholic, he's a liar, he's a cheat. I mean, not the type of dude your daughter brings home. Be like, look, mom, he's got muscles. <laughs> and you're like, yes, that's, that's literally all he's got. Again, tall, blonde, and pretty, right? That's, that, that's all Samson's bringing to the table here. Morality, <laughs> brains. Well, you know, he's clever, but he's clever in all the worst possible ways. But he's so pretty and strong. <laughs> All right, I'll stop. <laughs> He's broken every part of his vow. And yet, in the midst of his breaking his vows, what is he doing? He's killing Philistines. He's wiping out armies. He's burning villages 
so that the Philistines are being driven back. Who's doing that? Who's, who's making sure this works? Like, we got this, this alcoholic womanizer running around just killing people. It's, it sounds like a horror film. And yet it's God driving out the enemies. And his final act is an act of not even repentance, of just sheer vengeance by which God crushes the pagan temple and wipes out the majority of the Philistine leadership. See, what will it look like to have a sinful human worked through by God and brought to an accomplishment? It's Samson's a picture of this. That's what's going on here. Israel fails. God succeeds through Israel. Why? Because who rules and reigns? He does, not the nation. He accomplishes. What was always the plan? That the dominion of God, going back to the garden, would extend where? To the ends of the earth. For which people? For all of the people. This was the hope. This was the mission. This was the failure of humanity. This is the promise to Abram, that you will be a blessing on all the nations. How is that supposed to work? We're going to make you a great nation. All the promises will be fulfilled. The prophetic message will come forth. The people will evangelize. They'll be at the crossroads of three continents. They will see all of the peoples, and the message will spread. Oops. And yet, as they have failed, what has God done? He has raised up messengers. He has raised up people and he has sent them to the ends of the earth and he has accomplished where humanity fails God succeeds so no Israel has not failed because Israel was sent to fulfill God's mission who was always going to fulfill God's mission God was which means as God has fulfilled his mission you look at Israel and go good job you, you kind of went the, the, you remember the, the, what's the little kid in the family circus cartoon? You're supposed to like go from one house to the neighbor and he does like the whole neighborhood. That's kind of humanity fulfilling God's mission. But at the end of the day, what happens? We get where we're supposed to be. Why? Because God is accomplishing. Verse 12. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? This is hope from Paul. And you know, he should have this hope. If Israel can mess up this badly and the result is that Israel's failures lead to salvation for the nations, how much celebration and parting will there be if Israel nails this and gets it right? Now pause for a second. What would getting it right look like? What would fulfillment actually be? I would contend it was something we read last week in Acts chapter 2. Promise, the promise of Christ, is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. So if you're going to look at the people who are ethnic Israel, what should be the hope? What should be the promise fulfillment that we're looking for? It should be salvation. This is Paul's hope in chapter 10, right? I wish myself cut off if they, would be, if they would be brought in, that they would be saved. Not that they would be secure, not that they would have a lovely nation, but that they would be redeemed, that they would be one with Christ, as he puts in Philippians, that he, they would know the joy of his salvation and the work that he has set them to. Verse 13. But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. So self-awareness is not dead for Paul. He recognizes that he's, he's laying this out in a pretty, uh, pretty sweet manner for the Gentiles. Who's he talking to? Gentiles. Who's he ministering to? Gentiles. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead. 
Again, isn't that the gospel message? Be saved. Be alive. Moved from death to life. Again, go back to the Cliff Notes version, Ephesians 2. God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. This is Paul's hope. This is Paul's dream. This is what he wants for, by the way, which people? See, Paul doesn't just go into the synagogue and the Jews disagree with him. Be like, fine, I'll go to the Gentiles and you people pay attention so that you'll listen to what I tell them. No, he actually legitimately goes to the Gentiles. So that not just so that the Jews will listen, so that the Gentiles would be saved. Why is he going into the synagogue? Because he likes to argue? I mean, he might. People are weird. I get it. You know, is he going there just so they'll tell him no so he can then feel better about going to Gentiles? No, he's going because he actually wants the Jews of the synagogue to be saved. He wants all of the people. This was his message when he's before the governor. I wish that all men would be like I am, just not with the chains part. <laughs> you know, not in, jail, not in jail and under Roman arrest, but that they would all be followers of Christ. So Paul's going to then move into an example and a warning. It's very important. So verse 16, if the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. Okay, that's interesting. I'm going to keep reading because we could make a hash of that. And let's not do that. Let's actually read the context. So verse 17, but if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. Okay, that makes sense. So now we can understand this whole lump dough thing in this whole root and branch. So, has Israel been forsaken of God? No. How do we know that? Simple example, Paul is of Israel and is a part of the kingdom. Therefore, the promises given to Israel, the work. What was the advantage of being Israel in the book of Romans earlier? What, what, what advantage is there? Great in every respect. They're entrusted with the oracles of God, with the promises, with the patriarchs. Were those promises good? Yes. Were those oracles good and right? Yes. Were the lessons of the patriarchs capable of pointing to Christ? Yes. How do we know? Because God is using those messages in that means to save people. Therefore, that lump is producing what? holy pieces. That root is producing holy branches. However, some of the branches aren't producing because they have disbelieved. They are being what? Cut off. So now we just have parts of a dead tree, right? No. We have what? God taking of the Gentiles and doing what with them? Where ethnic Israel has disbelieved and are being cut off believing Gentiles are being put on. Now, do you sit there and go, I'm in, sweet, you're out. <laughs> is that how this is supposed to go? No, why not? Because chapters two, three, four, and five hammered what to you? That your salvation is by grace through faith. 
that it is not what you have accomplished, but what God has done. So, Israel as a root is holy, and Israel as a branch is holy. Remember, going all the way back to chapter 2 of Romans, though, who is Israel? He is not a Jew who is one inwardly, who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. And you can read Paul's earlier book that he writes before Romans, and read Galatians 3, and you get the same point. You can see in 1 Peter 2 that the promises of a royal priesthood and a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, all of these quotes from Leviticus, Peter is applying to who? The believers who are reading his letter. In other words, your standing is fulfillment of the promises. We mentioned this last week, I think, James writing to who? Believers, Christians, and referring to them as how? The 12 tribes scattered abroad. Because recognizing that they stand in fulfillment of what God has promised. The blessing of Abram to the nations fulfilled by God in his redeeming of peoples. From where? Revelation 7? From every tribe, tongue, and nation. They will be gathered before the throne and praising God and praising the Lamb and rejoicing in his salvation. Verse 19. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. It's a really long, convoluted way of reminding you of what he said in Romans 6. Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? May it never be. If ethnic Israel, inheritors of the promises, knowers of the prophecies, could disbelieve and be cut off, you claim to stand, but if you don't abide in Christ, will you produce fruit? No. If you produce rotten fruit, what will be revealed about you? that you are rotten, and God will do what? Cut you off and throw you into the fire. And you know what the first step in that would look like? Being arrogant about your salvation, forgetting that you stand by grace through faith and thinking that who has accomplished something? Yeah, because this is the warning that 2 John gives you. If you think you're in because you have a wrong understanding of the gospel, then you don't actually have the gospel. And if you don't actually have the gospel message, then you don't actually have Jesus. And if you don't actually have Jesus, you don't actually have access to the Father. And if you don't have access to the Father, can you get into the kingdom? No, so you're one of which two people, the in or the out. Yeah, not the place you wanted to be. So this is why boasting should be excluded, why arrogance should be thrown down, because we're not there because of our accomplishments, we're there because of his. This is the warning you get from Hebrews. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God.
This is one of the things I mentioned to you last week. This is why you have to guard your heart. Because it is very easy to see the world from a strictly fleshly perspective. From a strictly black and white perspective and say, we in, they out, we good, they bad, we hate them. There's a problem with that. They're not the enemy. Sin is the enemy. And this is what Paul always understood. This is what the New Testament always understood. This is what the writers have not forgotten. That as we go out and do battle, we do so with a remembrance of by grace through faith that we stand. By the accomplishments of Christ and we proclaim his mercy and his goodness. We demonstrate that change in ourselves by what? How do you summarize your lawful living in the gospel? By loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. So it's so loving to look at your neighbor and say, you, can, you, you know where you can go. <laughs> That's so loving, isn't it? It's tempting, isn't it? Be honest. You look at the madness of our world. You look at the sinfulness of our leadership. You look at the insanity that goes along. It's, you start looking at it going, you know, a bunker in the mountains looks real appetizing right about now. You've thought it. Some of you are grinning at me right now, but you're like, shh, stop giving away my plans. <laughs> no, it's not Vern. It was his, it was his brother, but <laughs> they do have the underground bunker, I'm told. <laughs> Why doesn't that work? Because we've done that in human history. We've done the monastic thing. We'll go hide away in the mountains and build a castle and leave you people to rot and do whatever you want. And that's what it would look like to try to hide the light under a bushel. That's what it would look like to try and, you know, hide away. And it doesn't work because it can't work because you're stuck being saved in the midst of sin. You're stuck living in the here and now. You may have wished for a different time, but you're not built for a different time. You're built for the now because this is where God has left you. So what do you do? You love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself and recognize that he has died and redeemed me. He has been raised to the newness of life. He has raised me to a new life and therefore I am transformed. And if he can do that for me, he can do that for a lot of other people because I know me and I was pretty bad. And so I go out into this world hopeful that it is a sovereign, ruling, and reigning God who is building his kingdom, not me. And as I testify to his mercy, and as I live in his grace, I testify to that sovereign power and know that it is his accomplishment, his spirit that is transforming Christ who is being exalted. So, verse 22. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? This makes sense. We're, you're getting comfort in the midst of the warning. If you, if you go on in unbelief, you'll be cut off, just as they were. If you continue in belief, you'll remain. If they turn from their unbelief because God has redeemed them, he will graft them in. And what will we all do about it? Rejoice. We'll rejoice because who has accomplished and built his kingdom? God. In other words, we've seen what? We've seen only the two categories of people. We haven't seen Jew and Gentile. We've seen believer and unbeliever. 
Hebrews 4, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have may seems to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word that they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed entered that rest. Verse 25. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In other words, there's a time frame going on here. And what is that time frame about? God adding to his kingdom and redeeming. And so... All Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Sweet. Now, this is again from the Old Testament. Let's stop and make sure we have our definitions, though. So does that mean that God has cast out some of Israel, brought in the Gentiles, and there's coming a time when he's going to stop working with the Gentiles and go back to working with Israel? No, why not? Who is Israel? Those who have believed. That was true in the wilderness after the Exodus. That was true in the nation at the time of Ahab. It's true when Paul wrote Romans, and it's true now. How will you know who is in? Jeremiah 31. Days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. How will you know if that law is written? You will see it by their fruits. You will see it in their lives. You will see the change of the inside being revealed in the life that is outside. That's the covenant when he takes away their sins. So Paul has just laid this out. There's a partial hardening on Israel. Yes, those who are in unbelief are cast out so that what may happen? So that all Israel may be saved. So that the covenant would be fulfilled. So that God would be praised. So that his kingdom would be populated by his people. Verse 28. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That's a reminder of verse 11. Should you be disappointed and upset at the unbelief of the Israelites? You can be, but at the end of the day, what has it done? It has caused God to move to accomplish his promises so that whereas Israel has failed, God has succeeded. That was a reminder from verse 11, is that Israel fails, but God accomplishes. So while they reject, God carries forth. So while Israel's trying to ignore the nations, they're inadvertently doing what? Preserving the messages of the prophets, preserving the history of the patriarchs, and preserving the promises of God as God preserves this sinful people. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also have also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience, so that he may show mercy 
to all. In other words, how many of the people are sinful? All of them. So if any of them are saved, they're saved by what? God's grace. Accessed by their faith that he has actually accomplished what he has promised. Galatians 3. Scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Meaning what for Israel in Paul's little rundown here? If you're disappointed that Israel has been hardened and Israel has been cut off and they have been sent out, then what needs to be done? Maybe an apostle should go to the synagogue and argue with them from the scriptures and preach the gospel to them so that they would hear the words of Christ so that the preacher would go so that they would hear and then believe. In other words, Paul's building on what he taught you you should be doing in Romans 10, the response of faith. How will they come back in? How will they be shown mercy? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the words of Christ. It's the same message here. God has put all under sin, all in disobedience so that his grace can be shown so that he would be what? That's where this ends. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Amen. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Who has, give, who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? You can't make sense of God. You can't understand everything. Because let's be honest, if you were seeing the disobedience of Israel, say, in First and Second Samuel, you'd be like, yes, God, yes, this is awesome work that you're doing. <laughs> is that what your first thought would have been? Because that's what Paul just laid out has actually happened. Is you should have been looking at the failures of Samson and the failures of Solomon and the falling short of David and the lunacy of Saul and the breakdown of the kingdom. And you should have been going, yes, God, yes, carrying forth your message just as you had promised. <laughs> kind of puts your Old Testament in a different perspective, doesn't it? But that's what the history should drive you to, is this sort of praise. going, I can't even fathom how it was accomplished in the midst of this. And yet you've done that. Verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. See, when you understand, this is, Paul lands here at the conclusion of this section because where else could you land? What Paul has laid out in the three chapters is that God rules sovereignly over everything. And yet he still works through and among his people. And that work looks different from a heavenly perspective than it does an earthly perspective. And as you see the work of God unfolding, it looks like human failure until you get to the end and go, oh my goodness, look at what he did. Look at how he accomplished. Look at how his patience and his perseverance and his mercy has saved these people amongst whom I'm included. Now, when you recognize that about God and recognize that about his work and recognize that we couldn't put this together, what are you left with but praise? That's why Paul lands here, because this is what the human reaction to an understanding of God is supposed to be. This is the beginning of wisdom, is recognizing that God has redeemed while we have seen his judgment and we are being redeemed in the midst of it. We also recognize that he has saved and he has placed us into a good kingdom. And while we are not dwelling in that good kingdom now, it's coming. How do I know it's coming? Because he has accomplished all that he has promised. He accomplishes that in spite of us, in spite of everything that it looks like is actually being accomplished. God wins. He rules. He reigns. He accomplishes. He saves. Now, you, Christian, in the midst of your world, with all the insanity that goes around it, 
Can God bring you to a good kingdom in the midst of that? Yes. Can God redeem you and strengthen you and add to his kingdom in the midst of the darkness that we see around us? Yes. How do we know? Wee! When you look through the Old Testament and see all of those examples, you see God accomplishing, God adding to his people, God building, God be praised because this is who he is and what he does for his people. Now, take that, look at your world, and tell me if you think you should see it differently. Tell me if you think you should see your life differently. Tell me if you think you should start to understand how you live in the midst of this place differently. This is part of your steps in loving God and loving neighbor. You can't love neighbor until you have first done what? Love God and seen his love poured out on his people so that you change the way that you see the world, see your place in it, and the kingdom that he's building. Let's pray.